One of the things that I find most curious throughout uh, the world is how human beings have a tendency to have different names for different things depending on where you live or the context in which you came from. And let me give you a few examples here this morning. If you were to go and get one of these from the store, not the particular type, but just the general thing, what would we as good Midwesterners refer to this as? It's pop with an A, right? You got to have sodi pop, okay? It's pop. Uh, if you're from anywhere else in the world, basically, yeah, it's referred to as soda, except, except if you live in the South, it's all referred to as Coke. So if you go to the restaurant and you say, I would like a Coke, and then they will say, what kind? You could say Pepsi, and they would bring you a Pepsi. It makes no sense. Pray for your Southern friends there. If you were to put these on top of a donut or a cake or a cupcake, what would these be called, people? Sprinkles. Unless you are in Boston. Anybody know? Jimmies, yes. Right? Why these are called Jimmies? Like, imagine not being from Boston. You go, can I get a donut? And they're like, which one? The one with some Jimmy on it. You're like, what? Not sure I want that donut. I don't know. This is like a cannibal donut shop. What's going on here? This is kind of a little weird. Uh, okay, how about this one? Okay, the, the proper name, the proper name, technical name for the game played with this ball is called what? Table tennis, people. Come on. Now, we like to refer to it as, unless you are British, in which you refer to this as whiff-waff. That's just kind of fun to say. I might, you know, like go to Britain just to play some whiff-waffs with some people. This one could really get you into trouble if you're unfamiliar with the names of things. Majority of people, what are these called? Some of you already started laughing. You know where this is headed. Sandals, right? If you're from the West Coast, we from California typically refer to these as flip-flops. If you're from New Zealand, you would take the S in sandals, drop it, and add a J. These are called jandals. If you're from Australia or someone who needs a lot of prayer and counseling, you might refer to these as thongs. Like, imagine being in Australia, and you didn't know that, and you're somebody's walking around, hey, nice set of thongs you got on there. You'd be like, whoa, this is, this is over the top. This is kind of weird here. You see, knowing your language, knowing culture is super important in communication. And when it comes to good communication, it's not just what do you say, but it's how do you say it, when do you speak it, and what type of tone or manner in which should you deliver something. You know, I believe that today's message is very important for this reason. And the reason is, is we believe and take the Great Commission seriously. Found in Matthew 28, go into the world, make disciples of all nations, along with the Great Commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew chapter 22 then understanding language and culture is super important because our hearts should break for people who do not yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Yet we also live in a culture in which professing the Christian faith is seen as a variety of different things. Might be seen as childish. Could be seen as homophobic, hate-filled, bigoted, weak-minded or certainly irrational and a little bit times illogical. That when proclaiming faith at any age will come alongside sneers and side-eye looks that at some point might get you the words as weak-minded or bigoted thrown your way. You see, simply put, 
just even uttering the words of, I believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We live in a time and a culture where the renunciation of faith is not just expected, but is anticipated cause of action for almost everyone. Maybe you've had this, this course of dialogue with someone and you, you're talking, well, yeah, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I go to church and they say something to the extent of, well, I used to believe that too until fill in the blank. Well, I used to go to church too until, until I went to college. Well, I used to believe in Jesus too until I did some of the, the research for myself. Well, I, I used to believe in Jesus to go to church uh, until I just stopped taking everyone's word for it, until I actually began to think for myself. And too often, I think, as Christians, we have a bad rep of how we go about this thing called evangelism, this call to share our faith. And it's usually one, two sides of the spectrum. One side is we just do it poorly. There's certain Christians where, where, where the word evangelism or sharing your faith is, is given ideas of like, well... That's the guy on the corner with the bullhorn. Or it's that judgment-filled billboard that just says, turn or burn on it. Or the other side, which might be a more common one for a lot of us, is when we face conversations with people who have real questions, real pains and hurts in life, we don't really know how to answer. We don't know how to actually steer them towards the hope and the truth and the foundation that we have found in Jesus Christ. And Acts chapter 17 is going to challenge us to say, don't let either of those be the case. Don't try to share your faith in a bigoted manner, in a hate-filled, judgment-engrossed way. At the same time, too, have an answer. Have a good answer. Have an answer that meets people where they are so that if they choose, they will know what step to take. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts. Uh, I know that's super surprising uh, given the series we've been in. We're in Acts chapter 17 this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. I hope that you do. Every single week, we will open the word of God. Our truths and our foundation of this church is built here. You will never have a Sunday in which we do not open scripture as a community of faith. As we're turning there, kind of where we've been, we're catching up with the Apostle Paul and his posse, and they are uh, on their second missionary journey in the book of Acts. And he's picked up some new homies. He's picked up Dr. Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, and then as well as his young uh, apprentice, Timothy, and then he's accompanied by Silas, and they've been traveling around. At the beginning of chapter 17, they go to two cities. They go to Thessalonica and Berea. They do their standard order of practice. They go to the temple. uh, They go to the synagogue. they, they, They establish. Uh, the, the idea of Jesus, invite people to start a church, and then Paul actually gets separated from the rest of the group, and he goes to Athens, knowing that at some point they would go to the center of the world at that point, that the most preeminent city would have been their next spot. So Paul goes on without them, and he heads to Athens, waiting to catch up with them later, and this is where we pick up this morning. Picking up in verse 16, follow along with me. It says, so while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, a.k.a. Gentiles, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. 
They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know this new teaching is that you, or where this is the new teaching is that you are presenting. And you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We would like to know what they mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So here's Paul. He goes to this place called Athens. And Athens back then was the most preeminent city. It's arguably one of the most influential cities throughout the history of the world of all time, specifically known for its its, uh, intentionality on the intellect. And so in in Athens, there would have been this place called the Acropolis, which means the highest point of the city, which is where the god Athena would have been worshipped in the Parthenon. And then off to the side, about 50 yards away, would have been the Areopagus, or also known as Mars Hill. And this is where the Greek god of Ares was worshipped, the god of war. So if you ever played the video games God of War, it's kind of kind of labeled into to, to true history here. And so Paul goes and he's going around and he notices something about this culture. He notices something interesting that it leads him to be distressed. It says because their whole city was full of idols. Now we hear this phrase and we might think they just had a lot of idols. They had a lot of false gods, little mini temples. They really liked, you know, some of these things. They just probably had more than the average city. This word full of actually means drown. Paul is distressed because he looks around the city and he sees they are drowning in their idolatry. There are so many false pagan gods that they are literally suffocating. Now this isn't to say that everyone was forced upon it to believe and worship these false gods, but the sheer ease of it was at everyone's fingertips. I remember going to Vegas for the first time as a teenager. And uh, you always hear like the stories and you see stuff on, on, on TV and movies about what is Vegas and you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas type of deal. And so my, my buddy's dad was having uh, like, a, like a work-related thing. So we were gonna go, we were gonna go just hanging out at the pool and the arcades and, and all that type of stuff. And I remember we pulled into the city of Vegas onto the main strip, you know, you drive past the sign and we, we got to a stoplight. And we, we were at a stoplight behind a taxi that had a billboard on it. And the billboard was, how do I put this in a church-appropriate way? The billboard had three bare posteriors of some ladies inviting you to hang out with them for the evening. You get what I'm saying here? We were more than 10 seconds into the city, and it was already like, come hither. And so then, you know, you're going from hotel to hotel. You're trying not to look at all the billboards and the taxis. So then you look down on the ground, and then you see, okay, there's some handouts floating around too. I don't, like, you, you can't help but see it wherever you go. And Paul is saying in the same way, the ease to try to find some source of truth or God or pleasure was absolutely everywhere. This is our first point for this morning, that everyone everywhere was and I believe is to this day, searching for truth. Everyone everywhere searching for truth so much so that they were drowning in it. Paul meets four groups of people here. Jews, God-fearing Gentiles, Stoics, and Epicureans. The Jews would have been followers of the God of the Old Testament. They would have had their places of worship set up in the synagogues. Then you had the Gentiles who would have gone to the same place and spoke in the same ways. And then you would have had the Stoics, 
And the Stoics were the thinkers. They were the people who believed everything in life is connected. Therefore, you ought, to be, uh, uh, you ought to be content about life because you never know how it might come back around. And then you had the Epicureans. And the Epicureans, they were just all about pleasure, baby. Give me more. Uh, it's my life. I want to do what I want to do. And you notice all four of these groups respond to Paul saying, what is this guy babbling about? But we want to know more. Hey, babbler, come over here, babbler, babbler to us. Babble over here. Babble to me because you are saying something I've never heard before. You're saying something I've never understood before, but I want to know more. Not one of these four groups said, well, you know what, Mr. Babbler, sir? You can go babble to them, but we're good over here. We've got it all figured out. Go to those illogical people. Go to those weak-minded souls. Babble wherever you please to whoever, but not us. We've got it squared away. And Paul is like, no, because they all wanted to know what he was talking about. And Paul's message begins to take this shape. Now look around you. Look at what your culture, your society, your city is putting onto a, a, a top of worship. That it might not be a bad thing, but it's certainly already made a crummy God to the point that you cannot find a source of truth. And it's no different for us today. Listen to music. When we watch television, movies, you turn on any news outlet, you read social media, everyone everywhere is searching for truth. This thing I like to call Twitter truth, which is um, like whenever somebody has a piece of information uh, that they shared with you and you're like, really, that sounds kind of interesting. Where did you read that headline? Like, I found it on Twitter. Okay, then therefore it must be true because we know that Twitter is the true source of everything that is right and appropriate in life. And so there's this one French scientist who decided to put this to the test in which he posted this picture. I'm going to show you a picture of this. So he posted this to his Twitter and he just posted it with the phrase Proxima Centauri, which means star closest to the sun. And so he posts this saying, this is the, the most up-close picture that we've ever seen of this star. Look at the detail and everything in it. And people just start liking it and retweeting it and sharing it. And then like four hours later, he comes clean and he goes, yeah, this was just to show you how easily you fall for stuff. This is actually just a, a piece of chorizo sausage under a microscope. But it's that same truth that everyone everywhere is searching for truth. And sometimes people are so desperate for truth, they'll look anywhere to find it. And Paul's response is beautiful because it says he reasoned with them. He did not rebuke them. He did not hurl insults at them. He did not make scathing remarks their way. He didn't try to drop the hammer. He engaged them with reason, with love and grace and patience. He sought to understand them before seeking to be understood. He listened to them before seeking to be heard. As almost as if Paul was kind to, to say by his demeanor, hey, look, I can tell that everything is at your disposal. Anywhere you look, anywhere you go, you have a God waiting for you, hoping to deliver some source of comfort or peace or truth. But you're still looking, so much so that you're drowning in it. Have you ever considered it's time to look elsewhere? 
So Paul's babbling comes to a close, and it says they take him up to Mars Hill, the Areopagus, to go deal with the really big thinkers of the day. And the second half of, of, of Acts chapter 17, I believe, is a very, very important and influential passage for us. That if we take the Great Commission and the Great Commandment seriously, we must need to be prepared. We must know how do we even go about this. Because what we do know, I think we can all agree, if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, you're not a disciple of Jesus, you and I would even agree that just yelling at people doesn't do anything. But if we want to help people find and follow Jesus, we need to know how to go about it, not just in a manner in which we talk, but in a manner in which we are heard. And so Paul does four things in this next kind of section that I think lays out a good, uh, a good foundation for us of how to go about this. So the first thing he does is he affirms their reality. The first thing Paul does, notice what he's going to do, is he's going to affirm their reality. Look what he says in verse 22. So he gets to Marcel and it says, Then Paul, stood up, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, People of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. What he does there, he affirms at least a foundational thing. He, he affirms a parallel. You're religious. This is good. Being religious means you have a desire for truth, that you believe that there is something bigger and, and, and better and beyond yourselves that have led you to this point. You, you see the need that there is something that you ought to be worshiping in life. I see that you are very religious. He affirms their reality. But next, he considers their reasoning. Verse 23, he says, For I walked around... And I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So he asks them to consider their reasoning. You're very religious, even to the point where you even worship a God that you can't even name. You, you are so desperate for truth and meaning that you've even elected to have one that you thought you could put in a box and worship here, yet you know nothing about it or him or her or whatever. You just labeled the, the God unknown, but you know that there is one there, that there is something out there that you cannot define, that you cannot control, and, and you don't know where else to look except for that there's got to be another option. Look what he does next, though. He gets them to think through a new frame. He tries to get them to reframe how they think about this foundation of gods and religion. This is what he goes on to in verses 24, 25, 26. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit this whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and their boundaries of their lands. Consider this, he says. Let me give you a new frame to think through. Perhaps, just perhaps, this unknown God is actually a very knowable God. You've been searching, you're drowning, you're suffocating, looking for truth, that maybe perhaps instead of looking for many gods to piece together everything about reality and human nature, maybe there's one God who created everything. 
Maybe there's one God who is so sovereign, so powerful, so in control that you don't need to look anywhere. Perhaps there is one God who created everything and placed you here so that he might actually know you and you know him. You ever think about that, he says? And the last thing he does is, though, he doesn't just stop there. He steers them towards Jesus. This is how this passage wraps up. Steers them towards Jesus, saying these things, picking up in verse 27. So he said, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far off from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And they heard about the resurrection of the dead. Some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. He steers them towards Jesus. He says, let me tell you how I see things. God is knowable because he knows you. God is knowable because that's how he's made us. God is knowable because that's how he has revealed himself. And you can submit to him. You can follow him. You can know him too. That this God, the one true God, has made a way for our paths to be united with him. He is different than all of the others. So much so. He's given you the proof that he desires you through the resurrection of his son, Jesus. You see the difference in that approach compared to sometimes the other ones? The difference in the approach to, hmm, consider, think about this. Let me meet you where you are compared to, well, if you don't believe, you're just dumb. Well, here's about 10 Bible verses. Go ahead and read them, and then you can decide for yourself. It's your choice. I'm not going to really like where you're going to end up. See the difference, the compassion, the grace, the intentionality? Let's put a, a, a modern spin on it. Let's use the, what I call the good God, bad world scenario. And some of you, this maybe is where you are. Maybe you have a coworker, a friend, a family member, who this is where they are. The subject of faith, the subject of God comes up and they say something to the extent, well, I don't know if I could believe in God. Have you seen the evil in the world? Have you seen all the pain and the brokenness and the suffering that is going around? A, affirm the reality. I do. I've experienced some. And I'm going to guess that by asking this question, you've experienced some too. And it sucks. It's not easy. It breaks God's heart as much as mine. Well, you see then, so then, then how can God exist with all of the evil in the world? Why doesn't he do something about it? Well, let me ask you, where does this knowledge of good and evil come from in the first place? If you don't believe in God, where does this knowledge of absolute good versus evil arrive from you? Well, I just know. I just know instinctively I can just feel it. I know when something is good versus what is wrong. 
So it's not relative for you. Well, of course it's not relative. Okay, well then what if I told you, if you were to go back into the 40s, think through this frame. If you were to sit down with Adolf Hitler and interview him and ask him, what you are doing, is this for the betterment of all mankind? He would say unequivocally, yes it is. Is that good or evil? That's evil, of course. How could you kill six million Jews and think that's okay? But what if in his mind he thought it was? What if there was a culture in which it approved the ability for anyone to break into your home and rape one of your daughters? And if you tried to fight back, they would have the right to take you to the death. As it's known, the Hootsies and the Tootsies. Well, I just know that's not, that's not good. That's, that's, that's evil. Everyone knows this. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere. Truth must be absolute. So think about this. Where does that absolute truth come from? If there's an absolute truth, there ought to be an absolute truth giver. And perhaps that truth giver is the God of the universe the one triune God, Jesus Christ, who lived, died, rose again, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's what I believe. Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God move? Why does it exist and happen? Because he's a God of love. Ha, gotcha. You just said he's a God of love, and yet we just talked about all this evil that's in the world. It's because he's a God of love. Let me ask you something. If you could put a, a microchip in someone's mind and it gave you the ability to control their actions and their words and their affections and so you found, say, the woman of your dreams and she would never love you but you had this microchip and you placed it into her mind and then you had the ability to kind of control her in that way, would you say that she loves you? Well, of course not. That's not real love. Okay, so in order for there to be True, genuine love, there has to be what? Free will. And so in order to have true, genuine love, there must be the free will to choose it, to express it, to desire it. But in that same moment, that same free will provides people the choice to choose evil and cause pain and suffering. So perhaps the question is not, why does God allow evil? But the question is, why do people choose it? And what is being done about it? Affirm the reality. Consider this. Think through a new frame. But let me steer you towards my foundation of Jesus Christ. I want to close with these three quick thoughts for us this morning. I call this reasoning for the love of God. Number one, we need to meet them where they are. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says, For I have become all things to all men, therefore that I might win some. That means that a sound rebuttal, a theologically uh, complete unit, only goes as far as the compassion that it's delivered in. We must meet them where they are. We must understand that as disciples and as Christians, the Bible is completely useless to someone who doesn't believe, but is very helpful to you and I 
in laying a foundation of what we understand and what we know. That's why we encourage, get into your word. Know your Bible. Have that foundation of truth. Be able to think through it beyond just spouting out verses here and there. But we must think like others before asking them to change their mind. Number two is what I call drop pebbles, not bombs. You ever get a pebble in your shoe? It's like, it's like up there next to childbearing and pain, is it not? Like talk about a burden, right? You get that little pebble in your shoe and you start shaking it because you're like, well, I got that spot at the front of my shoe. If I can just get it up there. And then initially it just, it goes wherever it wants to. And it's on the bottom. Then it's on your heel. Then it's like up your leg somehow and goes back down the other side. Isn't that like the most annoying thing ever? Like you can't get this pebble out of here. You see, that's what it is what I like to think. And when we engage with conversations with people who don't know Jesus, your job is not to aggravate them. Your job is not to make them angry, but be a pebble. Agitate their minds. Agitate their thinking. Don't go after the ha, gotcha response. Agitate. Agitate. The Socratic method, even in ancient Greece, was the same thing. Never force your ideas, but ask good questions. Drop pebbles, not bombs. Number three, and this is probably the hardest one, is how someone responds to Jesus is more about their openness opposed to our eloquence. You don't have to be a Bible scholar in order to share your faith. You don't have to have every single answer of every single question that's going to come your way. There are people in this church who come up to me after eight years of, 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 of college and graduate level Bible knowledge who ask me questions where I'm like, yeah, I'm going to have to get back to you on that one. I, I've never heard that one before. Let, let's, let's meet up and talk about that one. But you do need to have your answer. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, be ready in and out of every season to give an answer for the reason and what you believe. We need to know why we believe, even though we don't need to have all the answer, but their willingness to follow Jesus has more to do with their heart than it does our eloquence, and we cannot change hearts. The heart is key. You know what Paul says to the church in Corinth in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, he says, And it's, it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that in your faith, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. The heart is key, and only Jesus can change those. In Acts chapter 17, the Jew, the Gentile, the, the, the Stoic, the Epicurean, they all knew something, but they were missing the main thing. 
their hearts were still searching and longing. Paul goes up to Mars Hill and there is a tomb, an altar to the unknown God. And if that doesn't shout reality to us today, that there are people in this church, there are people in your families, there are people in your life who are worshiping an unknown God, that they have been unable to define this thing that they're chasing and searching for, for truth and meaning. And Paul says, let me show you how to steer them towards Jesus. As G.K. Chesterton once said, when man ceases to worship God, he doesn't cease to worship. He just worships a different one. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship the one true God this morning? Lord, we bow humbly before you. We thank you for the way you've revealed yourself to us. Lord, fill us with wisdom. Fill us with knowledge of you. Fill us with passion and steadfastness for your word. Fill us with compassion and grace to meet others, to answer questions that we can, to steer others to that relationship with you. We know that you care about them. May we care about those who do not yet know you as Lord and Savior. Use us, Father, as beacons, not just of your truth, but beacons of your love. May our hearts be opened and may you open any hearts of any conversations we may be having. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's your glorious name that we pray.